If you would like to buy your own copy of Nuclear Russia, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by a respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. In part two of our episode on Nuclear Russia, we are continuing our conversation with Paul Josephson, Professor of History at Colby College in the US. We'll be discussing the groups that have suffered as a result of Russia's pursuit of nuclear power, a nuclear-themed beauty contest, and the evolution of Russia's nuclear culture. Then, looking forward, we consider what Russia's self-proclaimed nuclear power renaissance could mean for international security and the environment, and what could be done to combat this nuclear resistance. Take a listen. who were marginalised in Russian Soviet Union and in other nations as well, who were treated not just bizarrely, but perhaps inevitably extremely poorly as a result of nuclear politics, nuclear militarism. In your book, you write about the Kazakhs and the indigenous people, such as the Nenets, who lost their homelands because they were made to move for reasons of nuclear testing. And clearly it was partly because of their ethnicity. And there are similar examples of this. You talk about US and and, and France with the Bikini Atoll, for example. Could you talk a little bit about that, about how, you know, there were certain peoples who were essentially moved away from their homes because of the needs of nuclear testing? You know, a lot of uh, people who do nuclear history have observe the way in which the entire nuclear enterprise is a, uh, a colonial or a post-colonial enterprise where at the very least uranium ore is often in sites which belong not to the predominant people in a nation but to others. So for example many of the uranium mines in the United States are on Navajo lands in the uh, Southwest. Gabriel Hecht has written about uranium mining in France, uh, in Africa, in service of the French industry, which is France produces 70% of its electricity from nuclear power. So it's one of the most nuclear nations in the world, but its uranium comes from abroad, from people who were in the past part of the colonial empire. In Australia, Mines are also in Aboriginal lands. And when the British decided to test nuclear weapons and become part of the nuclear club, one of the first five, it tested in Australia, where its tests spread plutonium and other isotopes across the outback, endangering indigenous people. The Bikinians and Marshallese in the South Pacific The French moving from Algeria, where they endangered Bedouin populations, to test in Tahiti, the Polynesian people. And they did atmospheric tests until quite recently in nuclear history terms, until the late 80s, early 90s, when the other nations had signed a treaty not to in 1963. And so in the Soviet Union as well, Two groups in particular, but many people uh, suffered the experience of entering the nuclear age, of achieving Marxian modernity and sharing in the glories of state power. The Nanets, uh, who are a nomadic reindeer uh, herding 
people who live in the Arctic regions of the country and uh, Kazakhs who are also nomadic, although perhaps a bit more sedentary than Nanette's people. And both of them lost their homelands to the determination of Moscow to build nuclear weapons and achieve parity with the United States in the arms race. For the Nanettes, who are smaller in numbers and did not have their own republic, although they do have an autonomous region in the north above Moscow and Leningrad on the the Arctic Ocean called the Nanettes Autonomous Republic. I've been there in some of my research. The Nanettes lost the lands that they had on Novaya Zemlya, two islands, part of an archipelago in the Arctic Ocean, which was used to test nuclear weapons after the first test site, the Kazakh test site or the Semipalatinsk test site, which is in Kazakhstan, was established. And the largest bomb ever in the world, the Tsar Bomba, the Tsar's bomb, uh, which was 50 megatons, three times larger than anything the United States, more than three times larger than anything the United States ever exploded, was set off on Novaya Zemlya and near Novaya Zemlya. And the pollution in the Arctic regions to this day because of nuclear testing and also because the Soviets dumped radioactive waste, including carcasses of reactors and torn apart submarines. They dumped this waste into the Arctic Ocean. So you could talk about the Nanets as really suffering the forces of becoming modern under Soviet power. And in terms of Kazakhstan, uh, Stalin and his secret police chief, Beria, determined to build an inland testing site in the far east steppe of Kazakhstan, where several hundred nuclear blasts occurred. And even when the tests went underground in 1963, there were often problems with venting of radioactive gases, for example, xenon. And the public health of uh, the Kazakh people for the entire republic, which also provided uranium and still provides uranium for the world market, but as Kazakhstan, which provided uranium to the uh, Soviet nuclear effort. The entire republic was subject to a radiological disaster. We don't really know the true extent of the disaster because many Soviet documents about the health costs, how many people were exposed, fallout and so on, were not as well documented or if as well documented are not as available as they are in the United States. So you can learn a lot about fallout in the United States and the impact on the downwinders in Utah, for example. We can assume, because nuclear weapons are nuclear weapons, that the Kazakhs suffered immeasurably and there is significant data showing higher risk of cancer, blood diseases, respiratory ailments, stomach problems, children with birth defects. The entire nuclear enterprise around the world has been one of using people setting off weapons, nuclear tests, in other people's lands. And the Soviet Union was at the forefront of this effort with its testing in Ninets and Kazakh regions. That's really interesting. I know that when I learned about the Cold War, kind of unsurprisingly, it was pretty much like between the United States and Russia is how it was pitched to us. Certainly 
like no thoughts to sort of how the indigenous indigenous people of the United States kind of felt about all this nuclear activity. And kind of interestingly, on the literary studies side of things, we have this book out called The Handbook to Cold War Literary Cultures. And there's a blog post up on the Lit Studies blog right now that talks a lot about how much of the kind of like political and military conflict of the Cold War actually ended up playing out in quote unquote third world countries places like Uganda, India, and how really actually it just can kind of be seen as just like one of the steps in a larger process of decolonization, which is like certainly not something that I learned about in school about how sort of the conversations revolved more around self-determination, decolonization, things like that. So definitely just like really realizing how much I do not know (laughs) about the Cold War. But I will say one thing I kind of did know, and one of the main things that I learned about was the disaster at Chernobyl. I think, you know, kind of on people's minds more so because of the recent and pretty successful TV series. Could you just talk a little bit about what Chernobyl meant for the Soviet Union at the time and what impact it continues to have on the wider world? One of the interesting things about nuclear technologies is that when something goes bad, everyone knows its name. So when when a roofer falls off the roof, they don't call it the Jones fall. But when a nuclear power station explodes, there's an accident. You know Fukushima, Chernobyl, and so on. So Chernobyl is one of the two worst nuclear disasters in the world, and there are several to choose among between Fukushima and Chernobyl. It had significant meaning for the former Soviet Union. It occurred, as you know, in April 1986, at a time when Gorbachev was pushing reforms of glasnost, openness, and perestroika reform of the economy. And in the first weeks after the disaster, the authorities did not know what to do, how to treat it, how to explain it to the public, how to explain it to the world. In other words, they failed in the first steps of glasnost to be open and forthcoming about the accident and what to do about it. And they were totally unprepared for it. Gorbachev himself later said that this was probably the most important event leading to the fall of the Soviet Union because it indicated to many people the inability of the state that had founded itself as being, you know, proclaimed itself a scientific superpower had instead participated in the world's greatest anthropogenic accident at that time in 1986. So it was important in the lives of all Soviet citizens, especially those in Belarus, which was more contaminated than even Ukraine and Ukraine, somewhat less in Russia. It was important for the citizens of Europe. The French nuclear industry, as I mentioned, very powerful. I think 58 operating nuclear power stations, was also not forthcoming with the French public about how safe it was to eat cheese, milk, vegetables in France after the radiation cloud passed over France because they didn't want to frighten the French citizen at home about the power and safety of the nuclear enterprise in France. It was important for me. I was a graduate student at MIT at the time working on my doctoral dissertation about the history of Soviet physics before 1940. And suddenly, 
I started getting phone calls from national media about what had happened in Chernobyl, how could I explain it, and so on. That interrupted my dissertation for several months as I wrote an article and eventually turned to a book called Red Adam that appeared, I think, in, I don't even know now, 1997, 2000, who knows. But I've been thinking about, Chernobyl has had me thinking about nuclear Russia since that time, although the accident occurred in Ukraine, although the nuclear enterprise in terms of nuclear physics in some sense had its birth in Ukraine. It's still under the leadership of the Kremlin and the Politburo that decisions were made to build this kind of reactor, very unstable at low power, in reactor parks. There were four operating reactors at Chernobyl when number four exploded. They were building in one stage or another. They had begun to build six others. So they were going to have a park of 10 Chernobyl-sized reactors, each of them equally unstable. There are still 10 so-called RBMK reactors operating in Russia today, although with a different regime to ensure that the kind of accident would never happen again. But this, this accident poisoned the nuclear industry for a number of years. Most of the reactors under construction were uh, put into mothballs. Ukraine abandoned nuclear power, put a moratorium on nuclear power station construction until 1993, and then economic forces came to bear again so that the nations, Russia and Ukraine, returned to the peaceful atom to produce electricity because the economy needed it so much. So we live in a post-Soviet society in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, where the Chernobyl legacy will always be present. Ross Atom, the inheritor of the Ministry of Middle Machine Building from the Soviet period that was responsible both for bombs and reactors, is now pushing the sales of reactors, although pressurized water reactors, not RBMKs abroad. Ukraine is still tied into the Russian fuel cycle for some of its technology, for some of its fuel rods to re refuel its 15 reactors. Belarus is building, a, has one reactor already online that they bought from Rosatom. India, Turkey, Finland, which canceled its contract with Russia to build Russian reactors after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in uh, February. All of these countries are still in many ways tied into the Russian nuclear apparatus. And, and so Chernobyl has had a tremendous impact on the future of the Soviet Union, on approaches to nuclear power and its future in nations of the former Soviet Union and those abroad. And if I may just say, I thought that the uh, Chernobyl show on HBO was superb. Some critics have said there are certain details that aren't absolutely accurate. I think from the television show, we learned precisely about the horrors of a nuclear accident and the challenges that local and national people faced in trying to come to grips with it. And it was important for making people think about what the future of nuclear power might be, insofar as many people claim and there's some foundation for saying this, that nuclear power is an alternative to fossil fuels, that it's a green technology. 
Now, I disagree it's a green technology, but I understand the argument. So I, I thought that the Chernobyl show was just spectacular, so well done. And uh, I urge people to watch it again. Yeah, I definitely I started watching that in preparation for this interview. I haven't finished, so no spoilers. Uh, not sure how it ends. It ends poorly. I would not have guessed. But yeah, I mean, it really does. It's a really great, like, does a great job showing the, like, human costs of things and, like, the administrative failures that happened. So you've kind of touched upon perestroika and glasnost already. And you, you mentioned in the book that under Gorbachev, people, you know, become angry when they we learn about the realities of the, the nuclear activity and policies that, you know, the USSR has had. What do the Russian people today think of nuclear strategy? Is there kind of a consensus? What are the different arguments there? Well, I think generally speaking, most people in Russia today, it's... We don't have complete and regular opinion polls, but most people favor uh, the production of nuclear electricity from nuclear power. And one of the reasons for this is that the industry has done a great job in reinventing itself. Uh, they have a self-proclaimed nuclear re- ongoing nuclear renaissance. Ross Atom is well-funded. Ross Atom has between 250 and 300,000 employees. It's a major government organization. And so people, I think, embrace the peaceful atom in the way that they did before Chernobyl. Every year on April 26th, Putin has a small meeting in the Kremlin where he reads some proclamation about how sad it was in 1986, and we remember those who gave their lives. But now we're moving ahead, and we're going to build more power stations. Ross Atom has these projections of building dozens of new power stations by 2050, including the floating nuclear power stations that I mentioned earlier, one of which has already been deployed in the Arctic. In addition, the industry... At one time, it was secret, although what's secret about a nuclear power station? You know, it's a big tea kettle. It uses uranium to produce heat, fission to produce heat. But those stations were closed. There was no public visitation or hard to arrange. But now each of these power stations in Russia has a well-equipped PR apparatus, a TV studio, a local newspaper, glossy publications. They run children's drawing contests where they ask children to make uh, paintings or pastels of unnuclear themes, and they're always sunny and glorious. At least the contest winners are. You know, the the power of the atom is is the future. Flowers grow everywhere. So the industry has done a very good job of overcoming what was called in the late 80s and 90s radiophobia, which the promoters of the industry believed was caused by ignorance, not based on reality, although the Chernobyl disaster indicates that there's some reality when you're fearful of a nuclear power station, the chance that there may be a catastrophic accident, for example. I think this is, when you're talking about PR, what you said about how Chernobyl affected the Soviet Union, also the wider world, 
just briefly, it made me think about, I learned quite recently about the wind scale incident in the UK. And I think it's like quite telling about how much governments and countries who have invested in nuclear power, the instinct is to cover up because with with wind scale, from what I learned, like, again, there was initially like a denial or a playing down of, of what happened due to potential political consequences. Thanks, Paul. Let's move on to, I'm curious to, to know, what does Russia's recent self-proclaimed nuclear power renaissance, so to speak, mean for international security? And also, what might it mean for the environment, you know, from what you've spoken about and also what you write about in the book, the environmental consequences of nuclear power, whether it be militarization or so-called peaceful uses, has been absolutely catastrophic. Are there any efforts to combat this nuclear renaissance that you think have been or potentially could be successful? I don't think it's possible to slow down or prevent the nuclear renaissance. It's in the peaceful sphere, nuclear power stations to produce electricity. Now, many people who study the nuclear enterprise would argue that the industry, the world industry, has done an excellent job of showing or demonstrating that the peaceful and military sectors are entirely separate. But I think that's not the case. I think that the nuclear enterprise was born out of nuclear weaponry and that peaceful applications are secondary and that most of the funding that goes into the nuclear enterprise still primarily goes into military budgets across the world as opposed to peaceful. But it seems to me that Russia has done a better job of preventing its nuclear renaissance from spreading beyond its borders by attacking Ukraine in February of 2022 this year, because already we see that Finland has canceled plans for a nuclear power station. I don't know whether Iran or Turkey will do so, and India has several pressurized water reactors currently under construction. It seems that they will go ahead uh, with building them, but it seems to me also that I don't see other countries buying into Russian technology in current circumstances. That supporting Russia in during this war against Ukraine is far beyond the rational means of, of any nation other than those that have already engaged Rosatom. So I think they've hurt themselves and their future in the nuclear sphere. I would expect instead nations like uh, South Korea to become much more powerful and active in selling reactors abroad and Russia's market shrinking considerably for at least the next 10 years. Of course, remember, I am a historian and historians aren't supposed to talk about policy on the other hand, we understand policy better than policymakers. As we continue to realize that we are making the same mistakes over and over again, maybe we should turn to historians on policy more often. <laughs> so you've mentioned Ukraine a lot, and I think that's one thing that really stuck out to me from the book. You say that after the breakup of the USSR, Ukraine held about one third of the Soviet nuclear arsenal, which was the third largest number in the world at the time. I'm kind of just wondering, 
to what extent is like Russia's current invasion of Ukraine like a legacy of the Soviet emphasis on nuclear power and proliferation? I think most people would honestly say it's hard to see any rational behavior in Putin's determination to attack Ukraine other than the desire to recreate Russia as empire, something that has been going on since the time of Peter the Great. And in June 22, Putin himself referred to Peter the Great and suggested it, that he would be restoring the imperial legacy. So he's trying to carve off pieces of the world, of his old world. He's a KGB agent. He has said many times that the greatest disaster of the 20th century was the collapse of the USSR because it led to a new world order in which the United States predominated and could not be balanced by another superpower. We should all recall that in 1994, the Budapest Accords were signed by Russia, Ukraine, and several other countries. They agreed to give their nuclear weapons to Russia to become non-nuclear weapons in exchange for having their borders inviolable and recognized forever. And so the war against Ukraine is simply a violation of this 1994 accord. The war has nothing to do with NATO aggression. The war has nothing to do with, with fascists in Ukraine, with Nazis in Kiev. It has to do with the effort of Russia. Putin hoped that his troops would just march into Kiev in February and be gr greeted. I would say that the war has very little to do with the nuclear enterprise because Ukraine has the peaceful atom, it has 15 reactors, but it has to do with the atom in a military sense in this way. Russia occupied the Chernobyl zone during the initial stages of the attack, leading to the spread of radioactivity. Their vehicles, their military vehicles, raised the dust of radioactivity in the region. What were they hoping to control there? Were they going to use it as a staging area for other troops to begin to attack? And now they are trying to take control of the Zaporozhye nuclear power station, which has six operating reactors. It is the largest single nuclear power station in Europe. And Russian troops have taken it over. On uh, Saturday, I believe it was, the Russian intelligence services arrested the director, the Ukrainian director of the Zaporozhye nuclear power station and have held him for questioning over what I don't know. But Russia, the first nation of the peaceful atom, if you think back to Obninsk in 1954, has become a nation that is using peaceful nuclear power stations as a place to wage and control a war. And this is really a threat to all of world security. That's really interesting. I think all incredibly grim. So we normally try to, to round out these interviews, kind of imagining a different future and hopefully a better future than the one we are currently headed towards. But we were a bit stumped in this case, to be honest. Is there anything about like your research and kind of like studying history that makes you feel positively in regards to the future? 
I think I'm going to write my next book on the history of the tomato. That's a positive thing. Let me think just for a second, because it's really hard. It's, it's hard to think about a positive moment when nuclear Russia is carrying out a war in Europe, unprovoked against Ukraine, and in which uh, the president of that country, Vladimir Putin, and many of his TV personality supporters have said that nuclear weapons are not off the table if you cross the red line. No one knows what the red line is. The most hopeful thing would be that Russia returns to its roots as the founder of the peaceful atom, returns to the joys of the constructivist visions of the 1950s when Obninsk, Sputnik, Yuri Gagarin, first man in space, when all of these things were what the world thought of the Soviet Union, first in peace, first in scientific achievement. And so I'll just have to hope for that and hope for a quick end to the war. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure there's a, a better place to leave off than a quick end to the war. Certainly something, you know, we're especially thinking about during this conversation. Thank you so much, Paul. 